0: My name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And before we jump into our passage today, I want to share something with you that I am really, really excited about as a dad, as a dad, okay? So I have three kids, and if you're here long, you will meet them. I think they're really cute. You might not think so, but I do, so don't tell me. Um, And last weekend, Megan Corey, our kids director, hosted an incredible training for what's known as our Center Kids Leadership Team, okay? Our Center Kids Leadership Team. So we have about 15 men and women who lead our kids' ministry and who make sure that our volunteers create an environment for your kids where they learn about Jesus, they're highly engaged, and they're safe. Every week when our volunteers go down there, there are people that are holding the rope, that are leading, that are giving up their time, their energy. They're praying for your kids by name. And as a dad, that gets me so excited. You see, one of the things we believe here is that future generations are the church's present responsibility that future generations are the church's present responsibility, that it's our privilege and responsibility to hand the baton of the gospel off to the next generation. And that is why I'm so excited about our kids' ministry. It's why I'm so grateful for Megan and our Center Kids Leadership Team. So if you were at that training last week or you are one of our classroom leads or you are one of our uh, service directors, would you stand up right now if you're in the service? Stand up. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Let's give these folks a big round of applause. (laughs) You guys can take a seat. I'm so, so grateful for that ministry, and I'm so excited to see how it's growing as God is bringing more and more families and more and more kids to our ministry. Um, So if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Jonah chapter 3. So you can type to or turn to Jonah chapter 3. And if you're new to Center Church, I'm really glad you're here. and You picked a great weekend because today we're going to talk about what I think is one of the most hopeful chapters in the entire Bible. One of the most hopeful chapters in the entire Bible. If you're anything like me, you probably have regrets. Right? You probably have regrets in your life. Maybe you regret decisions that you made in college. Maybe you regret a romantic relationship that you were in. Maybe you regret the career that you that you chose. Maybe you regret that you didn't spend more time investing in your kids while they were in the house. And, whether, whether you're, you're coming from man, being a young professional or a grandparent or a college student or a family, wherever you are today, we can probably all agree that we have regrets. And we can learn from our regrets so that we don't make the same mistakes again. But the problem of regrets is there's very little you can do about them. right What's done is done. Most of the time, we have to live with the consequences of our regrets. But that's what makes Jonah chapter 3 so hopeful. Because what we're going to learn today... Is that in the most important relationship in your life, your relationship with God, you can have another chance. In your most important relationship in life, your relationship with God, you can have another chance. You don't have to live a life of regret when it comes to your relationship with God. You see, Jonah chapter three is about second chances. Jonah chapter three is about God never giving up on you. In fact, if I had to summarize Jonah chapter three in one simple idea, it would be this. God's not done with you. God's not done with you. What we're going to find is that God was not done with the prophet Jonah, and God was not done with the city of Nineveh. God's not done with you. And we're going to learn three important things about your relationship with God from this chapter. We're going to learn that God's not done restoring you, we're going to learn that He's not done using you, and we're going to learn that He's not done challenging you. I've been praying this week that for some of you who have been on the fence about Christianity, you've been checking things out and you're not, sure, you're not sure if you have enough faith to take that step and to say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I pray that by seeing God's crazy commitment to you today, it would give you faith to take that step. And I've been praying for others of you. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time but there's areas of your life that you just can't seem to give up to him. You just can't seem to obey him in that area of your life. I pray that you would see God's crazy commitment to you in Jonah chapter 3, and that would give you faith to open up your hands and say, Jesus, you can have all of my life. I am so excited about preaching this chapter. I've been looking forward to Jonah chapter 3 for the entire series of Jonah. So let's jump right in, okay? Here's point number one about your relationship with God. God's not done restoring you. This is from verse 1. To feel the weight of verse 1 of chapter 3, you have to understand the context of this story, okay? So maybe you haven't been with us, or maybe just to remind you, let me catch you up on what's happened so far. Jonah was a prophet in Israel, which means that he was a very prominent religious leader. So a modern-day equivalent might be the pastor of a mega church or a really well-known Christian like Billy Graham or someone like that. Jonah's job was to listen to God's word and then to obey it. But in Jonah chapter one, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah blatantly rebelled against it. God said, go, and Jonah said, no, to use Pastor Justin's words. God said, go, and Jonah said, no. And instead of obeying God's word, Jonah pivoted and went the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, and he got on a ship trying to sail away from the presence of God. But God, because he's gracious, pursued Jonah in Jonah's rebellion, and he did so by throwing a storm at the ship. The storm is threatening the ship. The ship is about to capsize and the sailors realize that Jonah is the reason this storm has happened. So they reluctantly throw him overboard to save themselves. And in Jonah chapter two, as Jonah is sinking into the Mediterranean and he is drowning, God appointed a massive sea creature. We don't know if it was a whale or a fish. We don't know. To swallow Jonah. Being swallowed by the sea creature saved Jonah's life. It was a miserable experience. He spent three days in the darkness being washed with gastric juices. Not what you want to experience. And in that moment, he cried out to God. He confessed his sin and he cried out to God for mercy. And God heard him and God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah out on the beach. That's in the Bible. Okay, that's what happens. So this is where we are. The the, chapter two ends. Jonah is a disgraced prophet sitting in vomit and he doesn't know how he got there. Okay, that you just have to get this in mind. I don't know if there's a great modern day equivalent, but it'd be something like this. Imagine you were a leader in our church, but this past Friday you went down to the corner and you got blackout drunk and you woke up on Saturday morning on some couch in a, on a random house on 14th Street. You smelled like vomit and you didn't know how you got there. That is literally what happened in Jonah's life. Don't soften this. This is what happened. I don't think in that moment, if that happened to you, Saturday morning, you're like, what? Is this a frat house? Is it, Where am I? Like, why do I have this hat on my head? Like, what's going on? You would not feel very close to God in that moment, right? You would not feel like praying. You would, it's not like you'd be like, oh man, I'm here. I'll just have my quiet time. You know, like, hey guys, you don't know, no, you would get out of there as fast as possible. You would not feel like coming to church this morning. You would not feel very spiritual. Can we all admit that? That is just a shadow of how Jonah felt. He was a well-known, prominent religious leader, and he was disgraced. And he was covered in fish vomit, and he's sitting on the beach. He doesn't know how he got there, and he's just like, what, Like, what is next? And you have to keep that in mind to understand the full weight of Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, and how amazing this is. Ready? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Time. The word of the Lord didn't come to Jonah after he'd gotten himself cleaned up. It didn't come to Jonah after he got back into temple or after he rejoined his Bible study. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in his mess. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in his mess. And if you underline anything in your Bible, then underline these two words, second time. Second time. You see, this entire chapter is about second chances. This entire chapter is about second chances. It's about the fact that God is not done with you. God is not done with you. Even if you're sitting in fish vomit on a beach, not sure how you got there. God is not done with you. If God can restore Jonah, God can restore you. You have to understand what a massive moral failure this was for a prophet of Israel. If God can restore Jonah and use Jonah, God can restore you and use you no matter what your weekend was like, no matter what the last three months have been like, no matter what the last five years have been like, no matter what your college career has been like. If God can restore Jonah, God can restore you. You see that phrase, the word of the Lord came? That is a really big deal in the Bible. There are very few people throughout history who have been privileged with a direct revelation from God. And the people that have been privileged with that, you've heard of. It's people like Abraham and Moses and David. Like it is a big deal to get a direct revelation from God. And here's what happened. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter one and Jonah rejected it. This incredible privilege comes to Jonah and he rejected it. He spurned it. He turned on God and he went the other way. And the truth, uh, truth is many of us have done the same thing. There are millions of people around the world who have zero access to the Bible. The Bible is not in their language. It's not even a language close to their language, right? They haven't spurned the word of the Lord because they don't have it. But that's not the case for most of us, right? Maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you have Christian parents who took you to vacation Bible school and who prayed with you and and bought you kids' Bibles so that you could try to learn the word of the Lord. But like me, you rejected it. And there is a season of your life, or maybe it's still today, that you've turned away from God's Word and you've spurned it because you wanted to party or to hook up with girls or to pursue your career or whatever. Maybe you're like me and you've had people all throughout your life invest their time and their energy and their money so that you could have the Word of the Lord and you have rejected it. You see, for many of us, we're not that different from Jonah. And it's important that we don't soften this because to understand the weight of this chapter, you cannot soften this. God would be completely justified in condemning us. God would have been completely justified in saying, Jonah, you reject my word and I reject you. Jonah, you're going to sit in your fish vomit, and maybe when you clean your act up, and maybe when you start obeying, and maybe when you start acting like a reasonable prophet, maybe my word will come to you. God would be completely justified in doing that to Jonah and in saying that to us. And here's why verse one is important. He didn't. He could, he'd be justified, and every other religion in the world says that's what God does. But verse one of chapter three of Jonah says the God of the Bible is radically different than any God you've ever come up with. For whatever reason, God is gracious and he is kind. And as Pastor Justin said, he is overflowing in mercy, not just generally, but towards you. He he doesn't just come to people in their messes. He comes to you in your mess, in your mess of pornography, in your mess of alcoholism, in your mess of gossip. In your mess of, of, I just can't get my identity right, I have to keep sleeping with more guys so I feel good about myself. He comes to us in our mess when we're in the fish vomit and we've screwed up, and he comes to us a second time. You see, God wasn't done restoring Jonah and God's not done restoring you. And here's what you need to understand about the Bible. When God's word comes to someone, it's not just a random word, it's a it's an offer of relationship. I mean, think about it. What is a relationship? You determine the depth of your relationship by the amount which you communicate and what you communicate about, right? So so if you're married, you probably talk about the deepest things in your life with your spouse. You don't talk about as deep a things with your neighbor, right? Because you're in a different level of relationship. That's why when you stop communicating with someone, functionally, the relationship is over. That's why if you ghost someone, it, you might as well have broken up with them, right? Like we don't break up with people anymore. We just stop responding to their text messages, <laughs> right? That's where we are. Don't do that, by the way. Anyway, Right? When we communicate with someone, we, we establish relationship. When we stop communicating with someone, we break the relationship. You see, when God came to Jonah in his mess, in the fish vomit, and the word of the Lord came to him, it wasn't just a command. It was an offer of restoration. It was God saying, Jonah, I still want to be your God, and I still want you to be my prophet. I still want to be your God, and I still want you to be my prophet. You see, God restored Jonah, and the truth is, God is doing that in our lives all the time. Now, sometimes it's dramatic, right? Sometimes you've done something really foolish or really sinful or really rebellious, and the restoration has to be dramatic, and it impacts other people, and it impacts major areas of your life, and you have to stop doing one thing and start doing another. Sometimes it's really dramatic, but sometimes it's less dramatic. Sometimes you've just just stopped reading your Bible. Sometimes you've been gossiping at work or you've been nursing a grudge against somebody else in the church, or maybe you've, you've not been serving on Sundays and you know you really should be, right? And God will come and he'll put his finger on that thing and he'll come a second time and he'll say, I want this, I want this for you, and he'll invite you to respond. You see, sometimes it's dramatic, sometimes it's a pile of fish vomit, and sometimes it's just everyday restoration. We all need to be restored and God's not done restoring you. And the way that we are restored is the same way that Jonah was restored. When the word of the Lord comes to you, you respond. The word of the Lord came to Jonah for a second time, and this time he responded. This time he said, yes, I'll go. And what's amazing is that God said, okay. He didn't make him go through a long laundry list of of penance. He didn't make him complete, you know, some sort of training. He said, I want you to go. Jonah said, okay, God restored him. Some of you need to hear this today. When you sin or fall, you don't have to beat yourself up for four days so that God will love you again. You don't have to go through a list of making yourself feel awful before God will love you again. You don't have to clean your life up before you respond. God comes to you in your mess and offers you restoration because that's his wonderful character. Like Psalm 103 said today, God is abounding. He's overflowing in grace and mercy. He loves to restore people. I'm a sucker for those um, home restoration shows. Any other fans in here, right? Okay, yeah, we can admit it together. We'll form a group later. It'll be great. Um, I I love the shows because I love uh, restoration. I don't love those shows for the plot line, okay? Like, it's the same plot in every single show, right? Like, Chip and Joanna Gaines find a house that used to be beautiful that is now a total dump right? But in 45 minutes, it's amazing, right? And she does the same thing in every episode, knock out every wall, right? Put in an oversized kitchen island. You're like, you could land a plane on that thing, you know? Like, I didn't make the, I didn't know they made slabs of marble that big, right? Um, And then at the end of the show, it's like beautiful and it's amazing and the grass has all been sodded in and it's like really cool. I watch those shows all the time. Not for the plot. I know it's going to happen, okay? I love, I watch them because I love restoration. Like, I love to see something that was beautiful become beautiful again. Like, I love to see something that had lost its purpose regain its purpose. You see, I love restoration, and God is in the restoration business. God is in the restoration business. That is what he wants to do in your life. He wants to take areas of your life that are not beautiful right now, and he wants to make them beautiful. He wants to take your life, which has lost its purpose, or you're running after a purpose that is not his purpose, and he wants to redirect you to the purpose that he has for you, his mission. Right? God is in the restoration business. That's the first thing that we learn from Jonah. Here's the second thing. God's not done using you. So God's not done restoring you, and God's not done using you. Look at verse 2. It says this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Those are the same words that God spoke to Jonah in chapter 1, the exact same words. God saying to Jonah, I'm restoring you, but it's not about you, okay? I'm restoring you, but it's not just about you. I'm restoring you for a purpose, to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh, the most influential and the most wicked city of Jonah's day. You see, this is important for us to understand because as Americans, we tend to be very self-reliant, and very independent. And that's not all bad. But what that means is we don't naturally think about our responsibilities to other people in society or to other groups. But here's what you have to get in your mind. If you're, if you're going to understand what God is doing in your life and what God is doing in the world, you ready? God wants to restore you so that through you he can restore others. God wants to restore you so that through you he can restore others. Others, when God restored Jonah, he didn't leave Jonah on the beach to figure out what to do next, right? God restored him, and God immediately gave him a purpose and a mission. And this time, Jonah did it. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Here's something to know. If you are a Christian, God has restored you to himself and given you a mission to accomplish. If you're a Christian here this morning, God has restored you to himself and given you a mission to accomplish. No matter how inadequate you feel, no matter how unspiritual you feel, if you are a Christian, God has restored you to himself and given you a mission to accomplish. God didn't send an angel to preach to Nineveh. He sent Jonah And God didn't send an angel to reach Charlottesville. He sent us. Right? This this idea that every single follower of God is called to proclaim the gospel is made explicitly clear in the New Testament. In Matthew 4.19, when Jesus called his first disciples, he said this, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Which means every disciple makes disciples every disciple makes disciples. Jesus' last words in in the gospel of Matthew are often called the Great Commission. He told his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here's what you have to understand. There are no exceptions to the Great Commission. Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make disciples unless you're a college student or unless work is really busy, or unless you have young kids, or unless you're a two on the Enneagram. That's for all you twos out there. Right? There are no exceptions to the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, Jonah was restored so that he could go and preach to Nineveh. And God has restored you so that you can go and be a means of restoration to others. At this point in the story, can we just be honest? Jonah was the last person you would expect God to send to Nineveh. I mean, he didn't have a great track record of obedience, right? And he wasn't exactly a picture of spiritual maturity, right? Covered in fish vomit, fresh off of a massive disgrace. And yet God says, Jonah, you're going to the most influential and most wicked city of the day. And God used him mightily. Because what's most important is not your ability, it's your availability, What's most important is not your ability, how awesome you are, what a great gifted you know, leader you are. It's your availability. Are you willing to say, God, I am not a finished product. I have a lot of things that I don't know. I'm working on stuff. I have my doubts. I have my failures. I have my flaws. But I'm willing, God, to be used by you in the environments that you've given me. You see, God is much more interested in availability than he is ability. Right? If you look through the scriptures, God uses some pretty unlikely characters. At one point, he uses a donkey to proclaim the gospel. Okay? So if he, can use, if he can use a donkey, he can probably use you, okay? Jonah smells like fish vomit, and God sends him to preach the gospel. So you're already way ahead of Jonah, okay? It's not about ability, it's about availability. God's plan for Nineveh was Jonah, and God's plan for Charlottesville is us. And one of the other things that you see in this, this chapter that's really interesting is God's heart for cities. Do you notice in verses 2 and 3 how much it talks about Nineveh and how great the city is and the breadth of the city? Did you know that cities are all over the Bible? That that the Bible starts in a garden but actually ends in a city? That, That the end of the book of Revelation is not back into a garden, it's into a garden city? Right? That the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, his primary strategy was to go to the largest city in any region and to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches there and then to move on. Why is the Bible so concerned with cities? Because God is concerned with people. And cities are defined by places of population density. So God isn't against cities. God doesn't hate cities. God loves cities. And so God sends people like Jonah to Nineveh, and he sends people like you and me to Charlottesville. I love Charlottesville. I love our city. I love the 200,000 or so people that live here. I love the 180,000 of them that are separated from Christ. When I see new apartments being built, when I see neighborhoods being developed, businesses going in, I get really excited. Because that means more people who are moving to our community that we can reach with the gospel. Did you know that Charlottesville is one of the fastest growing areas in all of Virginia? And that if growth rates continue, thousands of new people will move to our region every single year? That's thousands of people that we have an opportunity to reach with the gospel. People that God is moving here, people from overseas, people from countries that it would be very, very challenging for you to go to are coming here and are at like Millie Coffee. Like, it's unbelievable how strategic God has made this town. Did you know that there are 400 Afghani families that live in Charlottesville that have been resettled here through refugee projects? God has brought the nations to Charlottesville. God has brought students to UVA. God has brought people to the medical fields and the education fields and the hospitality fields. Why? So that we can proclaim the gospel. I've, talk, I've talked to a lot of you, and, I, you know, I usually ask, like, oh, what, you know, brought, what brought you to Charlottesville? And, you know, the, the, most answers I get are, um, you know, school or a job or to be closer to family or, like, the mountains, something like that. <laughs> and those are all good reasons. Those are all very real reasons. But if you're a Christian, I want you to understand something. The deeper spiritual reality for why you moved to Charlottesville was to make disciples. You see, God has you here on purpose. God has you here strategically. You are not an accident. God has given you access to particular people in your neighborhood, in your classrooms, in your profession, particular friends you have at the gym, so that you can be the light of the gospel in that place. Look, God does not send angels to reach cities. He sends disciples to make disciples. What would happen if we all started to believe that? Imagine if if you didn't think of your neighbors its just people that happen to live next to you in your apartment complex, but as eternal souls that God wanted to work through you to restore. Imagine if you thought of your teammates, not just as people you happen to play the same sport with or work at the same job with, but, it, but if you said, man, these are souls that God has commissioned me to reach with the gospel. What if your job was not just about making a living but was about seeing lives changed by the gospel. Imagine if we all went into our jobs this week thinking that way. What would happen? I think it would fill us with an enormous amount of purpose in every single interaction. And I really think God would turn this town upside down. You see, friend, you do not live here on accident. You live here on purpose. God sent Jonah to reach Nineveh, and he has sent you to reach Charlottesville. But if that's true, what are we supposed to do, right? Like, should we show up with fish vomit and preach on the downtown mall? Don't do that, okay? I mean, you can, I guess, but I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) What are we supposed to do? Well, verse 4 gives us a pretty clear indication. This is what Jonah did. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah went to Nineveh, and he preached an eight-word sermon. It's actually only five words in Hebrew. Eight-word sermon, five in Hebrew, and in response, the people of Nineveh, from the most influential to the most marginalized, repented and believed God. The worst city in the world, a city known for its brutality, a city known for its wickedness, a city known for child sacrifice— experienced revival. This is the largest revival recorded in the Bible. It is the greatest response to the gospel that we have in the scriptures. Why? Was it because Jonah was a remarkable preacher? Eight words is not much, okay? So it wasn't that. Was it because Jonah was so holy? You know, like just the holiness of his person, he just he just called people to response, negative, negative, right? We've already covered that. Jonah is the opposite of that. So what was it? Jonah proclaimed God's word and God's word is powerful. Do you see what it says in verse 5? It says that they believed who? God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. You see, Jonah was just the messenger taking God's word to the people of Nineveh. You see, they responded because God's word is powerful. You see, the word of God is like a spiritual defibrillator It is the instrument by which God brings dead people back to life. And the Bible is is full of illustrations of this. You've probably experienced this in your life. Have you ever been sitting in and listening to a sermon and just thought, like, this was for me today? Like, either the pastor has my journal or somebody texted him, but, like, this is for me today. Or maybe, man, you've been reading your Bible on your own. and It's just exactly what you need to hear in that moment. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's a word of faith. Maybe it's a word of challenge. But you're just like, this is like, it's it's almost like I'm not reading the Bible. It's like the Bible's reading me. Has that ever happened to you? You see, that is the power of the word of God. And the, the scriptures are full of sort of analogies for how this works. So 2, Timothy, or 2 Corinthians 4 says that the word of God is like the rays of the sun that come, that come to the earth and that melt cold hearts and make things grow. 2 Timothy 3 says that the word of God is like the breath of God with which he breathed out over the deep in Genesis 1, and he created the world. Isaiah 55 says that the word of God is like rain that falls from the heavens and makes the ground flourish and makes flowers bloom. You see, friends, the word of God is powerful, and what we need to understand is that the word can't do its work where people haven't heard it. The word can't do its work where people haven't heard it. It doesn't matter how incredible your defibrillator is if you're not there using it. So our responsibility in this town, in our relationships, is not to save people. You can't change someone's heart. It's to connect people with the power of God's word that can. I mean, think about it. If you're an EMS and you showed up and you've got the defibrillator but you're not using it, they'd be like, look, man, I'm glad you're here with the defibrillator. Use it. Like, I don't need your good ideas. I need, the, I need the, the power of life. And that is what the Word of God is. So our job is to connect our friends and our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors to the Word of God. So how do we do that? How do we practically do that? Well, I, you know, there's a lot of ways, but here are two that came to mind. Um, here's one. This is simple. Just invite people to church. Just invite people to church. Every Sunday, we try to preach God's Word in a clear and compelling way. So that wherever someone is on the faith spectrum, they can understand and engage with it. So invite somebody to church, and then afterwards say, hey, why don't we gr- go grab lunch and just talk about it? Right? What, what, did, what struck you? Man, what were you encouraged by? What made you mad? Just, di- just start dialoguing about the scriptures. So that's one simple idea. Here's another one. Just offer to read the Bible with people. Offer to read the Bible with people. Reading the Bible one-on-one is a really relational, low-pressure way to help somebody connect to God's word it's you saying, hey, you don't have to come to my thing. Let's just meet up at a coffee shop. Let's go to Grit. Let's go to Panera, wherever. And let's just walk through, you know, the gospel of Mark. And just let let me help you engage with Jesus. And let me help answer some questions you have. And you'll have questions that I don't know. And so we can find them together. We actually have a a small book in our resource center that's right out here called One-to-One Bible Reading. And it is really practical and simple. And it just explains how do you start doing this? How do you start Reading the Bible with somebody one-on-one. That would be a great resource for you to pick up. It'll tell you exactly how to do that. You could probably come up with you know, half a dozen other ways to do it, but the, the important thing is that we have to get the power of God's word connected to the lives of those that we love. Right? Your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates are not gonna be brought from death to life because of your really, really clever answers. And I hope you have clever answers. I hope you're thoughtful. But the power of salvation is in the word of God. And so we have to get people connected to it just like Jonah did. So God's not done restoring you. God's not done using you. And here's the last thing that we learn. Number three, God's not done challenging you. God's not done challenging you. At this point in the story, the focus shifts from Jonah to the king of Nineveh. We learned two things about our relationship with God from Jonah. Now we're going to learn one from the king of Nineveh. Here's verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, remember what the message from God was. You ready? Here's what it was. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, it was a straight-up challenge to Nineveh's wickedness, complete with threat of impending judgment. I mean, that's what it was. It was not a soft word. It was a challenging, hard word. God didn't pull any punches. If you don't change Nineveh, you will be judged. And you have to understand that the king of Nineveh was not used to being spoken to that way. Because the more power you have, the less people challenge you. If you, if you are a boss, you know that you very rarely get the real story from your employees. Right? Because they don't want to rock the boat, right? There's literally whole industries developed around how can executive leaders actually know what's going on? Because it just gets filtered, Right? People don't challenge executives. People don't challenge the boss. The king of Nineveh was not used to being challenged. He was used to being coddled, which is what makes this so remarkable. God comes right up into the face of the king of Nineveh, and he says, unless you change, you will be overthrown. And friends, here's what you have to understand. If God challenged the king of Nineveh, you better believe he's going to challenge you. Right? If God didn't pull punches with the king of Nineveh, He's not going to pull punches with you and me. He's never going to stop challenging you. Do you know why? Because he loves you too much. God loves you too much to leave you in sin. God loves you too much to leave you in behaviors and in thought patterns that are destructive and that are not what he has for you. You see, what God is after is he's after forming you and shaping you into the image of Christ. But think about how an artist shapes a block of marble. What has to happen first? you have to hack off a lot of marble. God is committed to doing that in your life, right? If if you are kind of considering Christianity and you're sort of on the fence, it's really important to know this. God will not stop challenging you. He loves you. He's committed to you. But he's committed to you like the best father is committed to their child who says, I love you, I'm never gonna stop loving you, but we're gonna deal with this behavior because it's not good for you and it doesn't glorify me. If you're in here and you're a Christian, you have to understand that challenge is part of the Christian life. If you are feeling challenged right now, that is evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. It's a good thing. It means God is committed to you. It means God is working on you. I heard an interview with Tony Romo one time that was really interesting. Tony Romo was a former uh, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and he was, he was trying to make an NFL football team, right? He, was kind of a, he didn't get drafted. He was sort of a, a free agent guy. And he was at at the Dallas Cowboys camp, and the coach, Bill Parcells, was screaming at him all the time. He was like, it was brutal. He said, but I was always encouraged when he screamed at me because it meant that he cared. He said, free agents know that the worst thing is when the coach stops screaming at you. Because it means in his mind you're not worth the time. He's like, ah, whatever, I'm going to cut him anyway, I'm not going to invest the time and energy. Tony Romo said, as long as Bill Parcells was screaming at me, I was still on the roster. Right? God won't scream at you like Bill Parcells but he will challenge you. And it's important for us to recognize that he's gonna keep challenging us because honestly, the king of Nineveh is what many Americans aspire to be. The king of Nineveh was completely autonomous from a human perspective. He, he answered to no one. He didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do. and He didn't have to listen to anyone he didn't wanna to listen to. From a human perspective, he was completely autonomous and autonomy is what a lot of Americans are really after. I don't like my boss, so I'm starting my own company. I don't like my professor, so I'm changing classes. I don't like my spouse, so I'm going to divorce and remarry. I mean, the the movement of the American dream is towards autonomy, towards a place where we are completely independent and self-reliant, where we don't need anyone else and we don't have to listen to anyone else. Well, the king of Nineveh accomplished that, and God came up into that situation and said, you might be autonomous from a human perspective, but you are not autonomous from a spiritual perspective. You might not answer to anybody in this world, but you answer to me. And he declared a challenging message of spiritual judgment to the king of Nineveh. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. If God challenged the king of Nineveh, friends, he's going to challenge us. And how you respond when God challenges you will determine the trajectory of your spiritual life. How you respond when God challenges you will determine the depth and vibrancy of your spiritual life. When God challenges you to start tithing, to start giving 10% of your income to the church, will you do it? When God challenges you to stop sleeping with your girlfriend but instead to pursue sexual purity before marriage, will you do it? When God challenges you to go public with your faith through baptism? Will you do it? When God challenges you to change, at first it will probably make you mad. It always makes me mad. But what you do afterwards, after you're sort of mad at first, will determine the trajectory of your spiritual life. We see that here with the king of Nineveh. A strong, challenging word comes to the king. You have to imagine he was frustrated by this, irritated, who is this prophet who I've never heard of, who's you know, saying all these things, Tell me that I, the, the king of Nineveh, is going to be overthrown. And then somehow, by the grace of God, he responds this way. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, when God challenged the king, the king responded. And in the king's response, we actually get a really clear picture of what repentance looks like. First, he arose from his throne. That's symbolic of him giving up control of his life. He got out of the driver's seat and he gave God control. He said, I'm not God. I'm not good at running my own life. I need the Lord. Second, he took off his robe. In those days, your robe defined your identity. So the king was identified by a specific, special robe that he wore. He repented, friends, of his identity. He said, Look, I am not what I do, I am not what I make. I am not my GPA. I am not my sexuality. I am not my problem. I am not my giftings. I need to repent of my identity. I need a new identity. Finally, he covered himself with sackcloth. Sackcloth was a really, really rough material that was very uncomfortable to wear. The only people that wore sackcloth were really, really poor people who could afford nothing else. But he took off his lush robes and he put on this scratchy, uncomfortable sackcloth to express externally what he was feeling internally. You see, he was not simply grieved over the consequences of his sin. He was grieved over his sin. And so he put the sackcloth on to express how his heart was feeling. He was feeling uncomfortable. He was feeling the the weight of his sin. He was grieved over what he had done and how he had lived. God said to the king, spiritual danger is on the horizon if you don't repent. And the king responded. He got off his throne and here's what's happened next. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, God takes no delight in judgment. God takes no delight in judgment. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. So when he saw the profound remorse and repentance of the people of Nineveh, he was moved to forgive. And here's what this teaches us for today, and this is really important no matter where you're coming from, whether you are not a Christian or you're on the fence or you've been a Christian for a long time. When you genuinely repent, God utterly forgives. When you genuinely repent, God utterly forgives. He doesn't nurse a grudge against you. He wipes your slate completely clean and he gives you another chance. When you genuinely repent, God utterly forgives. That's what we see with the king of Nineveh. That's what we see with the Ninevites. That's what we see with Jonah. But here's a really important question for understanding this entire book. How can God just forgive them? I mean, they did genuinely wicked things. The Ninevites were terrible people. Jonah did genuinely wicked things. You and I have done genuinely wicked, selfish, manipulative things. How is it that when we respond, God simply forgives and he cleanses and he wipes? How can he declare us clean and innocent? and knew, how can he just wipe away our sin? Because about 800 years after Jonah, another prophet would come who would also proclaim God's judgment and the need to repent. That prophet's name was Jesus. You see, like Jonah, Jesus left a place of comfort and security so that wicked people could hear a message of restoration. Like Jonah, Jesus went into a dangerous place to proclaim a challenging message. And like Jonah, Jesus went out in the power of God. And so the most unlikely people repented and were restored to the Father. But unlike Jonah, Jesus did not resist his calling. Jesus did not run away, but Jesus willingly left heaven and was born as a poor, marginalized peasant. He left glory, he left power, he left wealth, and he took on poverty, and he took on hardship, and he took on suffering willingly. Unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't just put himself in danger. Jesus offered up his life. You see, Jesus was the truer and better Jonah. He was the fulfillment of Jonah in this extraordinarily important way. Jonah proclaimed the judgment of God, but Jesus absorbed the judgment of God. Jonah came and said, all you wicked sinners better repent or God is going to rain down fire on you. And Jesus said, all of you wicked sinners better repent because God is going to rain down fire on me. You see, the way that God can forgive you, the way that God could forgive the Ninevites, the way that God could forgive Jonah is not because your sin is not a big deal. It's because Jesus paid for it. It's because the one perfect, righteous man who has ever lived went onto a cross with your name on it. And all of the sin that you've committed and all of the wickedness that you've done and all the ways that you've failed and all of your regrets were placed on him. And God poured out all of his wrath and all of his judgment on Jesus Christ so that if you repent, friend, if you turn at God's word, he will forgive you and he will restore you And he will use you for amazing things in the world. And he will work on your character until you are a finished product. There is hope for you and me today because Jonah was not the last word from God, but Jonah was a picture of the true word of God who died in your place and in my place so that if we repent, we can be forgiven. So if you just close your eyes and bow your head, I want to ask a really important question. I think really the question of Jonah chapter 3. Have you ever repented and placed your faith in Christ? I don't don't do this in every single sermon, but I think I would be remiss preaching Jonah 3 if I didn't give everyone here a chance to respond. Are you still seated on the throne of your life or have you, like the king, gotten down off the throne and said, Jesus, that's yours? If not, friend, I hate to tell you the bad news. There is spiritual judgment coming. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know how many days it is for you, but it's coming. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that you can be restored. You can be forgiven and you can be brought back into a relationship with with God. So how does that happen? How do you do that? Well, I want to tell you. I want to tell you. So whether it's here this morning in this moment or later in the car or next week, you know what it looks like to get off the throne of your life and to invite Jesus onto it. It's very simple. Number one, you admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you're a sinner who needs to be saved. Just like the king of Nineveh, you've received the strong word of the Lord and you say, yes, Lord, you are right and you are justified. You admit that you're a sinner and you get off the throne. Second, you believe. You believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation, that Jesus paid the price for your sins, and you put your hope not in your goodness or your righteousness, but in his goodness and his righteousness. Finally, you confess that to God in prayer. It can be out loud or it can be silently, but just like the Ninevites, you cry out mightily to God for mercy. You say, God, receive me based on the work of Jesus. Friend, if you repent genuinely, God will forgive you entirely because of what Jesus has done. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Heavenly Father, that is my story. I was a wretch, and you saved me. I was was blind, and you gave me sight. Father, I pray for every single Christian here today that they'd be reminded of that powerful truth, and it would invigorate them with fresh worship and fresh faith to follow you. And God, I pray for all of those here, friends of mine who are on the fence, who are having a hard time committing, they're saying, I... I kind of want to give my life to Jesus, but I'm not sure. God, give them faith in this moment to take that step. Help them to see Christ on the cross for them. And I pray, Lord, that that would give them faith to say, yes, Lord, I'm going all in. I'm repenting. I'm getting off the throne, and I want you to be on it." Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys can stay just kind of in a moment of reflection. I'm going to invite our teams down forward to pass out communion. And today, we're going to get to participate with the church throughout history in remembering the good news of the gospel. So if you're here and you're not sure where you are with Jesus or you're just investigating Christianity, I'm really glad you're here. But I would ask you very strongly, please don't take this. Because this is something Jesus gave to his church to remember what he had done for them. So if that hasn't happened in your life, instead of taking communion, take Jesus himself. For those of us who are in Christ, here's the truth. Every single day, we tend to think that we are justified by our actions. We tend to think that our closeness to God has to do with how well we're performing. Martin Luther said that the natural disposition of the human heart is towards works righteousness. It's towards trying to earn it. But whenever we take communion, we rebel against that. And we declare, I am not justified by my works, I am justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. So as the elements are being passed around, I just encourage you to reflect on ways that you've been trusting in your own work, ways you've been trusting in your own goodness. And I'd invite you to turn from that and remember that everything necessary for your salvation was done by Jesus on the cross. You can take nothing away from your salvation, you can add nothing to it, because what Jesus did was utterly and completely sufficient. So take time, reflect on that in just a moment. I'll lead us.